Well, it's been a good week at Bible school. I always like hanging out with the kids and getting high fives and getting to talk to them and visit with them. It's a good week. Well, last week we dove headfirst into this series that I've entitled Facing Grief. And grief, as we talked about last week, is something every single one of us is going to deal with at some point in life. I mean, it's unavoidable. You can't get away from it because it's part of the human experience, human condition that we go through. It might be centered on the death of a loved one. We often think of grief in those terms, but it can also be in the loss of an opportunity or the loss of uh, progress in our lives, or it may be somewhere else in your life that something doesn't go well and you, you grieve over it. But all of us face it. Let's just be honest about that. And we discovered last week that the way to deal with grief, at least the biblical way, a biblical way to deal with grief, is turning to live with this consistent pattern of walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, letting him be with us all the days of our lives, not just the good days, but even when things get hard, that he's already there and we're not having to go hunt for him when things get difficult. Now I want to turn to a passage in the, uh, the Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica is, because is, you can actually go there today, it still exists, is, is a port city on the Aegean Sea, just south of uh, Istanbul is what it's called today, north of Athens, right along the coastline there. Uh, It was a city that uh, a mission team consisting of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke went to on the very first mission journey that they ever took. And they went there, and Paul and Silas uh, would return later and check on them on the second journey. But this church was comprised mostly of Gentile converts. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't Jews among the believers there because there were, and that was part of the conflict that they dealt with in that community and the struggles they had in that community. But one of the issues they faced was the idea of death, of grief, of how you deal with this issue, because as most of these people had converted from Gentile backgrounds, they carried with them a a belief that, that, that was going to affect their thinking. It's amazing. Uh, it really shouldn't be, but it's amazing how our backgrounds, our upbringing, our family of origin affects how we deal with things in life. We saw how our parents dealt with it, our grandparents dealt with it, and we tend to do a lot of times the same things. And these people were no different. But with the issue they're struggling with is they had heard from Paul and the missionary team of the hope of Jesus, of how Christ comes and gives us forgiveness of sin and brings us into a relationship with God and that he's coming again soon and we need to be ready. In fact, one of the things that would characterize the church at Thessalonica and pretty much every New Testament church was a belief, a firm belief that Jesus was coming back soon. Now, you're probably thinking, that's been, you're thinking, you're thinking, You're thinking it's been about 2,000 years now since that happened. You're right. So they live with this experience. And then what began to happen is what happens in our lives. People began to die among them. People who were followers of Jesus began to pass away. And they started to think to themselves, well, wait a second. We remember from our past what happens then, but what happens now that we're followers of Jesus. And that's where it brings us to this passage. And he brings us in his passage of five things of which we are assured. But let's look at the passage in its entirety. So you've got to get the picture of what they're dealing with before we dig into the five things. Verse 13 begins this way. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not, will not, proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, I pray that as we look at these principles in the passage, that God, you'd show us how to not just hear them, but God, to hear them in our hearts and in our souls and begin to bring them into our existence as your followers and understand that for us who follow you, that death has a different experience, grief has a different meaning, and that, Father, there's something greater for us than just this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, you're probably familiar with this passage because you've probably heard it at a funeral. It's a real popular funeral passage. I think I've had, uh, I can't even count the number of funerals where that's been the passage. But I don't want to talk about a funeral today. I want to talk about the hope that we have. What I want you to see, first of all, is he assures them that they have a rousing hope. Now, there's a rousing is an interesting word. It's a, it's, it comes from a German word that means to, to shake out of bed, to get you going, to get you up, get you around. They will say in German, rouse, rouse, rouse. It's a real harsh. German's a harsh language, isn't it? It's just kind of uh, guttural. But, but it's the idea of getting up, moving. We have a rousing hope. We come to this passage, we find Paul addresses a major theme, the third one in the book, uh, that he speaks to. And he's already talked to him about the importance of living a holy life, which we kind of alluded to last week in a different passage. And we also has, he also talks about the need to be encouraged when things get tough because that church was struggling with some issues. But now he says, let's talk about when Jesus comes back. Let's talk about the end times. Now you're thinking, oh, we're going to have an end times message this morning. Yeah, not really. Hang in there. What Paul doesn't do here is he doesn't delve into the details of end times. So guess what we're not going to do? We're not going to delve into the details of end times because there's no reason to here. That's not his point. That's not his focus. That's not his direction. What he does instead is in the broadest of terms talks about what's going to happen when it's all over. And he's speaking primarily to a Christian audience, to a believing audience, people who know Christ, who are following Christ, who are living with Christ, who are listening to his voice, and and, and trying to help them understand. Because he wants them to live in a way that they have this rousing hope that there's something more to this life than just this life. Now remember, these people have coming out coming out of pagan backgrounds, and you're probably thinking, "So what?" The the, the Greek the Greek culture in which they were raised, the, the Roman culture that had also infused that area, believed in an afterlife. They weren't people that didn't think there wasn't something afterlife. What they believed was quite different from Christian belief. They believed that when your ancestors, your belief, your family members died, they would be transformed into some kind of god. You remember, they had multiple gods, little g gods, and they would be people to whom we would venerate and we would look back to and we could even talk to in our prayers. You're thinking, well, that sounds kind of like some other belief systems in the world. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? But as time wore on, these people came to know Christ and Christ changed their lives. And there's a radical teaching that those who belong to Jesus don't become transformed into gods, but what? We have a promise of an eternity in heaven with God. And that's the thing that they're struggling with. As they begin to see their loved ones pass away and leave, they begin to think, well, what about? We remember 
Mama said, you know, you get in trouble when Mama said versus what God says, right? But Mama said, this is what happened. Daddy said, this is what happened. So Paul pins the letter to help the believers at Thessalonica understand what happens when your fellow believers die, when you're facing the grief of that moment. And he draws a very clear distinction here that I want you to catch because it kind of sets up the whole passage between those who trust Jesus and those who don't. Those who know Christ and those who don't. In the face of grief, the face of death, what is the difference for us? It's that difference in do we trust in Jesus? Do we not trust in Jesus? Do we know Jesus? Do we not know Jesus? In my time of serving in local churches, I've done a number of funerals, as you can imagine. And I've got to tell you, the easy funerals are the ones where you have a confidence that the person knew the Lord, that walked the Lord, was in, the, in Christ, and that now that they're gone, we're just looking at a box with a body, but it's not really them. Why? Because they are with the Lord. But I've got to tell you, those funerals I've had to do where you wonder, where there's a doubt, you go, oh, because there's what? There's no hope. And that's the difference that I want you to see in this. Grief dealt with when there's hope is manageable. Grief dealt with when there's no hope is almost suffocating. And that's the big idea he has in this passage. Jesus, in him, we can live with an assurance of that hope. It's not a vain hope. It's not a shallow hope. It's a living, breathing, what I would call rousing hope. They go, man, I'm excited about this. You're going, you get excited about people dying. No, 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 no. Hold up. I don't get excited about people dying, okay? But I get excited about believers who pass from this soil at the call of God, and they are now with the Lord. And I can get excited about that for them. I'm going, man, that's good. And grief's manageable. It may be painful, but it's manageable in that process. So we are assured of this rousing hope. There's another thing I want you to see. Out of flowing out of that are three, three um, steps that he lays out here that we need to kind of fill in the, the gap, if you will, of how we move forward. And the first one is this. We're assured of something. We're assured of Jesus' return. The thing they're struggling with is they go, Jesus said, you told us that this Jesus guy who's the Savior of the world, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who comes into our lives when we ask him to forgive us of our sins, you'd say he's coming again. We've been living. We've been going through life. He hadn't come back yet. Is he coming? And the answer is, absolutely. Look at verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Some scholars believe that that little phrase right there is one of the oldest um, decrees or declarations of faith in Christianity uh, uh, through all of history. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, though through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. So he lays out this assurance, what? That Jesus is coming again. We haven't seen it yet. Can I tell you something? We haven't seen it yet. Why? Because we're still here. But he's coming. Amen? He's coming. I remember as a kid, I grew up in the, in the, in the dark ages, but the, the, I don't remember the 60s. I was born in the 60s, but I remember the 70s. I remember the 80s. I remember at church them talking about, he's coming again. He's coming again. He's coming again. Better turn now before he, he comes and you're not ready. Better be ready. Be ready. If we don't go tell, they'll go to hell. Those are one of those phrases I heard, remember, from a, a revival meeting one time. And this, this thing I'd heard all my life, and I'm, in a, I'm pushing mid-50s, not 60s yet, 50s, and I'm thinking, he hadn't come back yet. Some of you are a little older than me. You're going, he hadn't come back yet. 
there's a chance we may live all of our lives and pass away and he may still not come back yet. But there's a promise in the scriptures what? He is coming again. He will return. And this is the idea. We must never forget the amazing sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, but also the idea that his return is imminent. One of the hallmarks of early Christian faith, including those here at Thessalonica, is this. He's coming again. I wonder some days if we really believe that. Do we live with that hope, with that expectation? They live believing that every day Jesus could come back today. They woke up with an expectation that says today could be the day. Today could be the day. He could be back today. He could be coming today. He could be returning right now. We need to remember that and live with that and believe in that. This is the essence of the gospel. We believe that Jesus died and rose again and he is what? Coming again. Wrapped up in this is not just the idea that he's alive, but he is also going to come back. And their fears for the Thessalonians of a deceased loved one being left out was unfounded. I don't know about you, but I find hope in that, don't you? Those of us who have lost loved ones who know the Lord and we know the Lord, that means what? There's coming a day when we'll see him again. I find hope in that. That's encouraging. The second thing he gives us to fill in the blanks here is this, that we're assured of God's remarkable plan. God is not just running around willy-nilly with scissors trying to figure out how to go through life. He knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's got a direction. Paul says it this way, for we, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is not Paul going, hey, here's my thought on that. I got to tell you, Paul was probably a pretty good guy. But I don't care what Paul thought. I want to know what the Lord says, right? This is what the Lord said, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So he describes the reality of those of us who are alive when Jesus comes again. Is Jesus coming again? Yes. He is coming again. When is it going to happen? We don't know. It doesn't matter. We just live with the anticipation. But when he comes, here's what's going to happen. Those uh, who are living with the reality of grief, that we lost them, we're going to go, okay, it's over. They was Those of us who remain until the day, and we're going to dig into that a little bit in a minute, no, and no one knows the day, God's not going to go ahead. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to walk up. So get the picture here. He's like, There's going to be a mass transition that happens. There is no way that when that day happens, the world will not know that something happened. There's no way. There's enough of us who follow Jesus that all of a sudden are not going to be here. Now you're going, when's that going to happen? I don't know. How's that going to happen? I don't know. All I know is the Bible says it will happen. And that's the thing we need to hang on to. And according to God's remarkable plan is this. It does not matter if you're alive when he comes back. It's not preferred to be alive. It's not preferred to be dead when he comes back. What matters is that we're in the Lord at that moment, that we're ready, that we've done what we have to. God's already decreed what's going to happen, when it will happen, and even how it will happen. And you can't change it. And you can sit around worrying about it, wringing your hands about it, having classes on it, debating it, all this kind of stuff. But you know what? You're not going to figure it out. Why? Because it's not, I don't think that clear in scripture how it's going to happen. All I can tell you for a certain, absolutely 100% is this. It will happen according to his plan. And it's called the day. I like that phrase. When's Jesus coming back? The day. 
When is that, Pastor? The day. What day is that? The day. What day? Uh, the, come on, give me more. It's the day. When is it going to be? When he comes. And you're not going to miss it. You're going to know that it's happened. And it's going to be a moment when God is going to transition those who are who have died in the Lord, those of us who are alive in the Lord, are going to go in this grand, almost parade, returning and going to heaven. A jubilant celebration of, of entry into the heavens. It's going to be a day. So there's a rousing hope. It leads to his return, his remarkable plan. But we are also assured of this believer's resurrection. So Paul wanted to make it real clear that they didn't miss it. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Add to the reality of his imminent return and the fulfillment of his plan is a promise of resurrection for the believers. This was crucial for the people at Thessalonica to get because they were first-generation believers. They had been indoctrinated all their lives that you become a God, not that you go to God in the resurrection and with the point of death. He's addressing, he's not addressing those who don't know the Lord. He's not talking to the lost. He's talking to those of us who know the Lord. In fact, the description of this verse is really... One of two things, and there's really only two ways to look at this. It's a matter of your perspective. If you're a follower of Jesus, what is this moment? Wow, right? It's a blessed moment. It's amazing, right? But if you don't know the Lord, what is this moment? Oh, me, right? You're thinking, well, I don't like that thought. Maybe just everybody gets to go to heaven. Well, we know biblical theology says that we've got to trust Christ, to have eternity in heaven. And so there's a marked line here that we don't want to forget and and ignore. And and, and in this lone event, we find deliverance promised by God in real time, in real space, in a real reality, and we get this sense of awe that God steps into time one day in the future and says, it's over. And he's going to resurrect the dead who know him. And he's going to bring us along with him and it's going to culminate in the work of Christ being complete. So what's the last step here? Now this all comes together in verse 17 and 18. Look at it again with me. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, circle that word. Encourage. Any of you need to be encouraged? I do. Encourage one another with these words. It all comes together in this grand reunion. Grand coming together. Those who've died in the Lord will be be before us, will be there in the procession. Those who are alive in the Lord will be in the procession. And most importantly, the procession will be led by who? Jesus himself. And it's at this point, all of the individuals will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now you're probably thinking, what does that look like? I can only imagine what it looks like. When's this going to happen? You already know the answer to that one. I can only imagine. We don't know when it's going to happen. But I can be sure of this truth. When it happens, those of us who know the Lord, along with those who have died in the Lord, will be reunited, finding ourselves in the presence of God forever and ever. And those of us who are facing grief, these truths hold a hope and a confidence that we can rest in. That those who have passed before us will be seen again. We will walk with them again. 
Well, I think we'll even recognize them again and know them as who they are in that moment. You know, in the here and now, yeah, I'll be sad. I'll even shed a tear. But there's the promise coming one day that we will be reunited with him. And so the other side of this is one I don't want us to skim over too much. But those of us who know the Lord then have a responsibility to make sure that those around us know the way, have at least heard the opportunity to trust Christ. You know, sometimes we say, well, that's your job, Pastor. No, that's our job, church. Well, that's the deacon's job. No, it's our job. We need to be sharing. You go, well, I don't know exactly how to do it. Just talk about what he's done in your life. Talk about the good stuff. Talk about how he's transformed. Talk about that moment you trust him. Talk about what's happened. That's the kind of stuff we need to be talking about, folks. Because I don't want to enter into eternity. I doubt you either. You do either. Knowing that I never told my neighbor, never told my friends, never told my, my parents, my relatives, When, when our oldest was just a little girl, my uh, my grandmother from southwest Arkansas was, was not doing well. <clears throat> and my my papa had passed away about eight years before. And I, I, I made a commitment that I would call her every Sunday night and talk with her. And I, over those eight years, shared with her the gospel again and again and again as the opportunity arose. And she would assure me, oh, I'm good. I'm a member of the Beach Street Baptist Church. And I got to tell you, in my lifetime, I never remember her ever darkening the door of that place. Now, going to church doesn't save you. We know that. But going to church is sure an indication that there's a change in your heart. Being with God's people. Yeah, but they're a mess, Pastor. Yeah, I know. But we're with them. We walk with them. We love them. I'd love to tell you that I know for certain that she made that decision to follow Christ. I don't. But I have a hope that if she did, I'll get to see her again one day. So three quick things I want you to see from this passage. First of all is this. Jesus' resurrection is not impersonal. It is personal. It is a personal event. Salvation is not merely a moment where you trust Christ. We heard about that we know of eight kids this week that made a decision to follow Christ. Y'all excited about that? I am. That's a start though, isn't it? That is not the entirety of salvation. You're going, what do you mean? When they trusted Christ, what happened? They got saved. So we're done, right? No, that's the beginning of a process of walking with the Lord, of talking with the Lord, of learning to be with Him. So salvation is not merely a point that we meet Jesus personally. It is also a process whereby we walk with Him personally. And then there's a destination, my friends, that one day when our life is over, when we breathe our last breath, salvation will be finally fulfilled for us and we will be in the presence of the Lord. In that, we should encourage each other, right? So we can really say that we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And that means a number of things. But this, the essence is this. There's coming a day when all of humanity will stand before God, not as Savior any longer. Because when time is over, that process ends. We will then stand before Jesus as our judge. And you'll go, well, I hope I'm good enough to pass the test. 
Listen, I hope you have known and trusted Jesus so that you can pass the test. Because just doing good stuff, just being a nice person, just being a member of the First Baptist Church, that stuff doesn't save us. Trusting Jesus is what saves us. Giving our hearts to Jesus is what saves us. And we'll enter into eternity and we will answer for what we've done, but ultimately it's not about the things we've done, but it's about the relationship we have with Jesus. This passage is the passage that I actually preached at my grandmother's graveside service, and you're probably thinking that was a tough one. Yes, it was. Listen to this verse from Hebrews 9. And just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but what? To save those who are Eagerly waiting for him. I've never preached that in a funeral before or since. But it speaks to this, that we're all going to face judgment at our death. And it's not about who, what we've done and about how nice we were or how much money we've given or how many times we went to Sunday school class. It's about what we did with Jesus when he pricked our hearts and says, follow me just like he did those disciples on the shoreline. Jesus will complete that process. And he doesn't just do it so we can avoid eternal damnation, but we do it so we can experience his blessed presence and eternity. So we don't grieve the destination of those who know the Lord, though we may grieve our loss. We really should rejoice for those who have passed on in the Lord. I love calling a funeral, I don't like calling them funerals, but a celebration of life. Because for a believer, that's what it is, isn't it? And yes, we're grieving. Yes, we're hurting. Yes, we carry that for time. But we've not been left alone to fend for ourselves. So resurrection uh, is personal. Second, Jesus will will wipe grief away. Don't say that six times fast because you'll probably end up stumbling over yourself. Six, we will wipe grief away. Let's face it again. Grief comes for everybody. Loved ones pass away. Difficult seasons come. We find ourselves in a grief storm that threatens to swamp us, literally, to wrap us up and just give us no hope. But how do we handle that? Do we just go, I'll get by the best I can. I'll figure it out on my own. Or do we run away from those who could give us support in the season? You know, for some reason it seems when grief rises in the lives of many, there's this radical shift we make, at least for a season, And instead of leaning into those people who can walk with us and talk with us and and, and love us and hold on to us and cry with us, we sometimes do this. We step back and go, well, I'm going to take a break. I want to get away from all these people so I can process it. I got to tell you, the best medicine for me as I've gone through grief is to be with God's people. To let them come up and hug. I'm thinking about people who have done that in my lives. And what a blessing. And just hug on you and, and love you. And you're going, but I don't want to show them I'm weak. i got to tell you, I'm weak. I can't handle that stuff on my own. I need you. You need me. We need each other to get through grief. And Jesus is the one who's going to wipe it away in the end. He's going to take care of it all. And so instead of running to Jesus, let's, let, let, instead of running away from Jesus, let's run to Jesus. Over in Revelation, we read where Jesus promises the day when he's going to take the pain away, the struggles away, the trials away. And, 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 he's, and the one who sits on the throne of God says this, he, 
Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, for those of us who know the Lord, there's coming a day where relief will happen, where deliverance will happen, where grief will be wiped away. I don't know about you, but I find encouragement in that. Don't you? Man, the day is... And you're going, but I'm, I'm struggling with it now. Man, I still struggle with it. This month will be six years for my, my our family since my mother passed away. My grandmother passed away 13 years. Those are the two last deaths we've had big ones in our family. You know what I mean by big ones, close family. And it still hurts, doesn't it? It still hurts. But the day's coming when Jesus is going to wipe it all away. Praise God. And guess when that's going to be? Jesus is coming Again, you know, Christianity is radically different from all other world religions. I, I see people talk about, well, they're all basically the same. No, I got to tell you, they're not all basically the same, except they all may be the same, but Christianity is radically different. And here's why we believe that the central figure of our faith not only died, but he what? He rose again. And on top of that, he says, and I'm going to. Come again. You can go to the, the tomb of the prophet Muhammad. You can go march around that all you want to in their month of whatever, Ramadan. That's not right. But in their month when they do that. You can go to the, the tomb of Buddha. You can find Confucius graves somewhere. But there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Our Savior is alive and he's coming again. For us as Christians, death is, we have a different perspective on death. We understand that death is not the end of our existence and we don't blink into nothingness. Instead, death for all people is an entry into eternal destination that's been determined by what we did with Jesus. You're thinking, man, that's hard. You know, there's, a, there's a push in the world today that just says, well, everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's good. Everybody's more. I got to tell you, there's a big old building out here on Highway 88, uh, 98 that proves to you that not everybody's good, okay? The state penitentiary, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. And you don't have to go out there to find bad folks. They show up at teacher parent conferences sometimes, right, educators? Some of you teachers can give me a chuckle there. But for those of us who trusted Jesus, we discover he's going to return and he's going to bring eternity and we're going to be with him. And the truth is that desirable path forward, laying in, it lays our lives at the feet of Jesus and letting him lead us. Listen to the words of Jesus. Here's what Jesus said on that. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. I believe he's not talking about our, our deeds there as much as he's talking about what we did with Jesus. So here's the question. Will you be ready when he comes? So I'm a good person. I'm hoping my good outweighs my bad. Huh. Good luck with that. Well, I got my name on the, on the roll at the church when I was baptized after Bible school. If you're relying on that act, you're missing it, as important as that is. 
Have you come to the place where you've trusted Jesus as your Savior? Because that's the beginning point of a life that's wow, that's worth living, that's worth experiencing. And the way you do that is very simple. You're going, oh, I got to do this, this, and this. I got to go to a catechism class. I got to go to this class. No. What you got to do is cry out to Jesus in prayer. Talk to him and say, I'm a mess. I think most of us can handle that part. Some of us think we're all got it all together, but we're really a mess, aren't we? I'm a mess. And I need you to forgive me of my sin. And I want you to give me new life. You go, that's it. That's for the beginning part. Yeah, that's all there is to it. We make it so complicated, folks. Forgiveness is simple because Jesus makes it possible. I want to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. If God's leading you to do so, we'd love to visit with you either here or after the service. We're going to stand here in a moment and sing a song and respond and give you a chance to, uh, to make any decision public you need to make. Father God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the blessing of being in your house this morning. Father, we thank you for the kids who sang. We thank you for the music we sang. We thank you for the giving that we give. We thank you for the prayers we've honored. We thank you for the word that you've shared with us through a flawed man. But ultimately, God, what we're here to do is to worship you. And we do that best once we trust you. We pray for those who need to respond either in this moment or maybe after the service, just have a conversation with one of our church leaders. We pray your blessing in this time. In Jesus' name.